back live with another episode of the GSJ EMS podcast, where today we're going to continue on with our discussion of New Life, an EMS guide to live birth, part two. We covered in part one the different terminology related with the birthing process, and today we're going to continue on uh, through stage two of the birthing process, and we're going to continue on with a little bit of a terminology. Um, We're going to talk about the different problems that can present with live birth and how we fix those problems. Uh, We'll go through a typical birth and what you should expect, what you can do for the mother, what you can do for the baby, and what you can do for the nervous fathers that are going to be there with you sometimes as well. We can't always control the outcome, but we certainly need to do everything we can to make sure we're on our A-game, providing the best care we can for both mom and the baby. And so we'll discuss all these things today, and again, uh, depending on time, we'll see how it goes as far as whether we get through the birth and into a neonatal resuscitation uh, if needed. So first off the bat, we have to understand that there are several risks uh, for both the mother and the fetus. The CDC began tracking uh infant and fetal mortality uh, as early as 1987 and per 100,000 live births they found um, that in eight in 1987 we were looking at uh, 7.2 again per 100,000 live births that there was a mortality uh, related with that birth and then uh, in 2009 the latest sample had a high of 17.8 there's different variations among races and uh, among ethnicities Um, When it comes to uh, uh, color of women, 11.7 deaths uh, were reported uh, per 100,000 live births for white women compared to that of 35.6 for live births uh, of black women. So again, these are deaths per 100,000 live births, uh, the mortality rate in those, and then 17.6 deaths per 100,000 of live births for women of other races. Uh, so infant mortality uh, is a problem. It's something that, that we need to address. Uh, the U.S. fetal mortality rate um, at, when it was 20 weeks or greater gestation was 6.05 per 100,000 uh, live births. So again, 6.05 uh, per 100,000 for the U.S. So knowing this data, it's important that we look at some of the specific complications uh, in anticipation that we may come in contact with in the field. Uh, And so that's what the whole episode today is about. Uh, And so we want to dive into that right now. We're going to start with placenta previa. Uh, We'll continue on then with abrupsio placenta and uh, uterine rupture, as those are the three most common uh, intrauterine causes of third trimester bleeding uh, and can be the biggest complicators of labor and delivery. Uh, So placenta previa is going to occur when the location of placenta is going to be close or even over the cervical opening. Uh, And it can be classified as complete and that's when the placenta is completely covering the the cervical opening or it can be partial when it's covering part of not or but not all of it Um, and so a low-lying placenta is going to occur then when the placenta lies low in the uterus uh, near the cervical opening but not over it and uh, with most cases of these placenta previous they are identified early in pregnancy and resolved by the time of delivery as the uterus uh, is going to elongate uh, to accompany the fetal growth and uh, and allow that that birthing process to begin and that placenta will then no longer cover the the cervical opening uh, and when complete placenta previa uh, conversely rarely uh, will that revolve spontaneously uh, becomes an immediate 
immediate uh, surgical procedure. Uh, and so signs and symptoms you may see with placenta preview are going to include episodes of uh, painless, uh, bright red bleeding of variable amounts. Uh, and these are going to occur most likely in the third trimester. Uh, and so, again, unknown etiology, bright red bleeding, no trauma. And again, uh, most likely during the third trimester. Uh, with the risk factors pl for placenta previa are going to include uh, previous episodes of previa, uh, prior C-section deliveries, or other uterine surgeries. Um, if you've got an older female uh, giving birth, uh, smoking, any drug use, uh, and then again, uh, a multiparity. Uh, so if we have a female that's had uh, multiple live births, uh, they are more at risk for placenta previa. When it comes to abruptio placenta, that's an abnormal premature separation of that placenta from the uterine wall. Uh, and a, a complete abruption occurs when the entire placenta separates from the uterus. Uh, a partial abruption can occur when part of the placenta separates. Uh, and a marginal abruption will occur when the separation occurs at the edge of the placenta. Uh, and so this is concealed hemorrhage, and it occurs when the blood's trapped behind the placenta and unable to exit the uterus. Uh, and this is going to be extremely painful. So uh, we talked about placenta previa. That's going to be non-painful, just bright red bleeding. Uh, when it comes to abruptio placenta, though, it's going to be very, very painful, dark red vaginal bleeding. And uh, the degree is going to be very variable on this. And a lot of times this is a result of trauma. Um, and so... Um, something we need to think about, especially with car wrecks or any other uh, abdominal trauma in pregnant females. When it comes to uterine rupture, this is going to be uh, most often seen during uh, the contractions uh, of labor and delivery and then will precipitate or can precipitate, I guess I should say, a uterine rupture. Uh, most cases of uterine rupture occur uh, at the site of a previous C-section. So uh, females that are given birth, uh, multiparity uh, that have had C-sections are at risk for uterine rupture. And a complete rupture and expulsion of the fetus into the abdomen is associated with a really high fetal mortality rate, about 50 to 75 percent, according to the CDC. Uh, and this fetal survival is going to depend in large part on whether the placenta remains attached to the uterine wall or not uh, and allowing for the continued fetal perfusion and this is definitely a surgical uh, emergency these patients need to be transported immediately uh, to the hospital and again this is going to be a very 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 um, painful uh, process for the mother uh, and obviously then for the infant as well um, and so it is possible to identify uh, uterine ruptures or suspected uterine ruptures uh, as a limb or head uh, the fetus may be palpable outside the uterus. Uh, so if you're feeling this elsewhere in the abdominal uh, uh, cavity uh, on palpation, uh, then you need to have a high suspicion of a, uh, a uterine rupture. Um, and so, again, we need immediate surgical uh, uh, removal of this, this infant from uh, this situation and immediate transport to a hospital that can facilitate uh, that type of surgery. When it comes to remembering uh, placenta previa versus abruptio uh, placenta and even uh, uterine rupture, a lot of students typically have the most trouble remembering these uh, when it comes to the color of blood and, and actually what's going on with the uh, placenta or the baby at that point. And I know a lot of students have a lot of trouble on National Registry trying to remember these uh, in the heat of the moment. Uh, so an easy way I always kind of remember these, uh, when it came to placenta previa, we talked about it kind of the placenta slipping over the cervical opening um, and so I always said the, the, the placenta was previously where it was 
supposed to be. Uh, remember, placenta previa is a slow process. It's not a very quick process. Happens over time, usually in that third trimester. And so it, it was where it was supposed to be previously. So previa previously, uh, it was where it was supposed to be previously, and now uh, it's not. And so uh, we have that bright red blood um, giving us a warning that something's going on. Uh, so bright red, non-painful. It previously was where it was supposed to be. That's placenta previa. When it comes to abruptio placenta, that, however, is very abrupt. It's in the name, okay? So we've got some type of something that's happened, some type of trauma or some other abrupt um, action that's occurred that's caused that placenta to separate e either partially or completely uh, from the uterine wall. Uh, and now we've got that dark red blood. And because it was so abrupt, man, it's going to be painful for the mother. And she's going to know uh, that it's a constant pain. It's not a contraction pain. It's a very constant pain uh, that the mother's going to be feeling from that abrupt, again, abruptio placenta uh, pain that she's feeling at that point. And then uterine rupture. Don't ask why, but I've always uh, thought of this uh, like the Kool-Aid man uh, just breaking through that wall saying, oh yeah, uh, coming out. And so the same thing is happening here with the baby. Uh, the uterus has ruptured. The baby is out now in the abdominal cavity. is no longer contained uh, in that uh, uterine sac and is now out in the abdominal cavity. And he's out there saying, oh yeah, you got to get me out of here. Get me out of here quick. Uh, and so, again, I hope those are uh, just some little silly ways to remember uh, the difference in these these uh, three uh, different uh, pre-birth emergencies that can happen uh, with a mother and infant uh, and, and can help you remember those, especially on test. A lot of times just having that silly reminder of those uh, does uh, tend to help. And so, again, you've got, uh, as far as pre-hospital treatment of these, uh, these three different types of uh, emergencies, uh, and again, these are all pre-birth emergencies of, of a pregnant female, uh, the placenta previa, the abruptio placenta, and uterine rupture, uh, it's going to be a lot of supportive uh, care. And so the very first thing that you can do for these mothers is attach oxygen uh, to these patients via an appropriate delivery device so that we're giving them the best chance we can of getting oxygen uh, to themselves and to the infant or the neonate inside. When it comes to mothers who are actively hemorrhaging or that are showing signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock, uh, fluid volume administration is going to be our best friend. And we want to make sure that we've got at least two uh, large bore IVs started in these patients and that we're doing what we can fluid resuscitation wise to to maintain a systolic blood pressure of at least 90. Uh, and, and I know we talk a lot now about MAPS. And so uh, my uh target goal uh, for a mother uh, who is in uh, a hypovolemic shock stage is going to be a map of at least 80. And so we want to make sure that we're getting fluids in these patients uh, and, and keeping their systolic blood pressures um, elevated uh, just a little bit more than normal. Uh, something to think about too in this is if you have a pregnant female um, that is hemorrhaging and there's uh, some type of episode of trauma involved in this, uh, it's okay to transport these patients to a trauma center uh, for evaluation and care. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is a, uh, a maternal uh, issue, a birthing issue. It could be uh, related trauma, and those patients may be better served at a trauma center. Again, in an emergency situation, we're always transporting to the closest appropriate facility, but if we can, uh, if, if we're maintaining a good blood pressure and maintaining uh, cementation with our patient, Take the extra few minutes and get these patients to a trauma center where they truly need to be if trauma is uh, in fact involved. 
When it comes to the transport of these patients, the biggest thing that you can do is make sure that you're transporting these patients on their left side, these mothers on their left side, uh, and at a 15 degree angle. We're trying to keep that pressure off of the vena cava, so we're allowing plenty of blood return so that we're giving the mother uh, every opportunity we can to maintain that systolic blood pressure. Uh, and, and again, the, the name of the game is keeping the pressure off the vena cava, allowing that uh, preload to come back to the heart uh, to maintain that blood pressure. So when it comes to describing uh, live birth complications, uh, one of the first terms that we need to be familiar with is malpresentation. And that's going to be a, a term that's used to describe any uh, fetal presentation other than the normal vertex position. And so, uh, again, if you know uh, your birthing anatomy, you know that when uh, babies enter that birthing canal, uh, they're going to come in uh, face down, uh, again, face down, head first. Um, and that is that normal position that you should see, that crowning of the head. Uh, and any other presentation other than that is going to be considered a malpresentation. And one of the, the most common malpresentations uh, that we see uh, in birth uh, is going to be a breech birth. And breech can be uh, anything basically other than that head. So uh, if you have a, a arm uh, coming through, a leg coming through, um, the buttocks extending through the birth canal first, um, you know, that, that piece there accounts itself for just 66% of all breech presentations. Uh, so the, seeing that butt first uh, presentation. Uh, and so again, anything uh, other than that head is going to be that breech birth. Um, and those need immediate transport to the hospital. Uh, sometimes those can uh, deliver okay in the field, uh, but normally those need to be uh, removed uh, via C-section uh, there at the hospital. Another fairly common uh, birthing complication is going to be what we term as shoulder dystocia. And that's going to be something that occurs after that head is popped through that birthing canal. Uh, you have the, the pubic uh, symphysis, and that is uh, getting held up there. The shoulders are uh, in that area, and they're unable to pass through that region. Uh, and so there are two different uh, maneuvers that we can use in the field, uh, the first being the McRoberts. Uh, we're taught uh, the McRoberts uh, more often than super pubic pressure, uh, but with the McRoberts maneuver, we're going to take uh, make sure that the mother's on her back, and we're going to do the uh, knees to the chest position uh, and try to open up that pubic symphysis uh, to, to get those shoulders past that region um, as best we can. Uh, and then with the... Uh, the other maneuver that we can use uh, with those is going to be uh, just a suprapubic pressure where we're applying that suprapubic pressure, uh, hoping to get those shoulders through. Um, we certainly don't want to uh, do any type of uterine fundus pressure uh, as that can uh, definitely increase uh, the inner uterine pressure and can also result in uterine rupture, which we certainly don't want to have uh, happen while uh, we are in this live birth or, or even at all. Um, so that McRoberts is, again, uh, the last I heard, 40 to 50% effective uh, at, at taking care of shoulder dystocia. The last two um, birthing complications that I want to talk about is nuchal cord and umbilical cord prolapse, uh, with nuchal cord being uh, probably the most common of all birthing complications that we see in the field. Uh, and, and what really is occurring here is when the umbilical cord is wrapped around the infant's neck uh, as it's being born. Um, and so the, the fix for that is just trying to get a finger up between that cord and the neck and slipping that cord over uh, the, the newborn's head and, and and allowing that cord to, to go back free again. Um, so 
a lot of times you may even see two or three rings uh, of nuchal cord. Uh, so this may be multiple procedures you have to f- uh, perform uh, to try to slip this cord back over the infant's head. And then also you may have umbilical cord prolapse. And so that's simply uh, where the cord presents first. Uh, and that definitely is a more serious complication uh, and occurs when that uh, the, the fetus is in the birth can, uh, canal, but the umbilical cord is presenting first. Um, and so there's a lot of compression that, that's probably happening there, uh, and that's interrupting fetal perfusion. Uh, and that can have very disastrous effects on the fetus. Uh, so we want to make sure those patients immediately are being transported uh, on the knees chest position. We want to make sure that we're uh, draping uh, that cord with a nice uh, sterile soaked uh, towel. We're not trying to put that cord back into the vagina. That we're just draping with a nice sterile uh, soaked towel. And again, transporting emergency uh, as, as quickly as possible to uh, the hospital uh, and giving a good report uh, prior to our arrival of what's going on. At any point during these birthing complications, uh, when you are presented with a cord, uh, whether it be prolapsed or nuchal, uh, you want to make sure you try to, to feel uh, for the cord, whether or not it's pulsating or not. Uh, and so the cord, if it's perfusing and pulsating, the likelihood is very well that the infant is getting uh, perfused as well. So we want to make sure that we're checking for that, uh, that pulse. And if we can't find one, uh, we need to be inserting our hand into the birth canal immediately and manually lifting the presenting part off the cord uh, to try to preserve that perfusion. Um, And so that may have to be done continuously during transport and can certainly tie up a provider. Uh, So if you have uh, the chance for multiple providers in the back or if you can call in uh, resources quickly or rendezvous with you en route, uh, you certainly want to be thinking about that uh, because that's something that's probably going to be an immediate surgical operation, that C-section, once you're at the hospital. Uh, And and then also, again, uh, having that mother on uh, oxygen is going to help there as well. Um, And, you know, even a non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute is probably going to be your best bet uh, in in that sort of thing uh, to try to keep uh, as much oxygenation flowing to both the mother and fetus as possible. All right, so now we've knocked all the uh, pre-birth and, and live birth complications out of the way. Uh, we're setting ourselves up now for a nice, healthy birth with no issues. And again, folks, I don't want to scare you. This is the way it happens most of the time. Uh, this is, is not something as far as birth complications that you should be scared of uh, because these are such rare cases. Um, normally, live births go very well, especially in the field. And matter of fact, there's a lot of people out there who don't go to the hospital to 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 give birth. Uh, mothers choose to stay at home and have uh, medulas and other uh, healthcare providers assist them in the birthing process. Uh, so this is a very natural thing. And the majority of these are going to go very well. Uh, and, and we really, in the end, are just assisting the mother deliver that baby. Uh, and I hate to I hate to say this. Sometimes it kind of sounds weird. But we're really, in, in a lot of cases, just catching the ball. Uh, we're just catching that baby uh, when it comes out. And so... Um, you know, that's where we're at. Uh, we're ready to have that live birth. We're ready to do all we can uh, to make this uh, as a memorable experience, but a safe experience for the mother and the baby. Uh, so first, uh, the baby's going to present again with that crowning. If you do happen to see the amniotic sac, uh, you need to make sure you go ahead and rupture that. And that's as simple as using a gloved hand and just pinching that amniotic sac and uh, just kind of 
pinching that together and kind of ripping a hole in that sack, you will see that bag of waters then uh, empty that amniotic fluid. Uh, so having towels can be a big help there. Uh, plenty of towels, plenty of, uh, of blankets and things like that to soak up that fluid. Uh, and so we are ready to go at that part. We, again, uh, are going to encourage the mother uh, to make sure she's remaining calm, uh, but she's going to be in a lot of pain, and so we want to do everything we can, again, encourage her to stay calm, to breathe deeply between those contractions, uh, and when the contractions are occurring, that she's pushing with those contractions and helping her body deliver that baby. And so as the baby's head crowns, we're just going to support it with gentle pressure uh, and gently support the head um, as it delivers to avoid any type of explosive birth and prevent injury. Um, another thing to note is if this is a multi-parity birth for this mom, uh, the more baby she's had, usually the quicker these births happen. The, the labor process is not very long, uh, especially the second, third, fourth, fifth time around. Uh, these can go very quickly, so be ready to work. Uh, as soon as you know that labor is imminent, be ready to work and work quickly. Um, we talked about breaking the amniotic sac. Um, you also need to make sure you're notating the, the color of that uh, if you have the chance. Uh, if the fluid's already uh has already breached on a woman uh, that you may not have a chance to see the color uh, but we want to be looking and making sure that it's a just a normally clear fluid um, and not uh, a brown or tainted color uh, fluid that would let us know that that there's some type of fecal matter in the meconium and we want to do everything we can uh, to uh, do a good suction uh, on the nose and the mouth of the in infant uh, so that there's not a risk of uh, aspirating this material and, and causing pneumonia um, and so just a, a good note there if you do see signs of meconium staining that that discolored meconium make sure you're not stimulating the infant and you're getting a good suction in using that bulb syringe on the mouth and nose of the infant um, again for that nuchal cord you want to make sure you're gently slipping it over the head not something you want to force. Uh, if it's too tight to slip over the head, um, go ahead and apply umbilical cord clamps, and you're just going to have to cut the cord at that point. Uh, but just try to gently, a lot of times you can kind of gently work it over the head of the infant, um, and the problem will, will then take care of itself. Um, again, 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 I can't overemphasize keeping the mother calm, encouraging her push with those contractions and supporting that baby's head. And uh, again, you just want to let the baby come at its own rate. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, we're there to just be supportive and, and assist the mother. Uh, the only interventions you may be required to do is to gently pull the baby's shoulders down uh, after it's coming through that, that birth canal, through that vaginal opening, uh, and, and trying to prevent that shoulder dystocia. And so you're going to use the anterior shoulder first uh, and pull it down, and then the other shoulder should deliver normally. Um, and so... Again, just applying gentle pressure on that shoulder uh, and continually supporting the head. And as soon as that anterior shoulder has delivered, we're going to apply gentle upward pressure to assist in the, the posterior shoulder. Uh, once both shoulders have delivered, be ready for the remainder of the body to deliver quickly. Um, it's going to squeeze out pretty quick, uh, and newborn babies are very, very slippery because of that amniotic fluid. And so, uh, again, be ready to, to, to catch this baby. Make sure you've got plenty of towels. Uh, and then as soon as you can, go ahead and suction the nose and the mouth if you haven't already. Get ready to stimulate the newborn. Uh, and so uh, you can do multiple things. You can tap the feet. You can kind of rub the legs. But we want to see that stimulation occurring pretty quick. Um, and then it's time to clamp the cord.
And so there's still a lot of uh, debate on uh, cord clamping and whether or not it should be occurring uh, in the field or whether or not uh, mom should delay that. And that's something the mother will have to determine on her own. Uh, the, the guidelines still suggest um, an immediate cord clamp once the baby's delivered. And we're going to do the first clamp around 8 to 10 inches um, away from the baby with a second clamp approximately two inches to three inches away from that first clamp uh, and then cutting in between using our scalpel blade. So we, we want to make sure, though, that we're not cutting a cord that's still pulsating. Uh, and so uh, kind of tying into what we just discussed, a lot of uh, mothers have decided to do delayed cord clamping, and they say that it allows a lot of their blood to flow into the baby, a lot more iron and things like that to flow into the baby, uh, and that it's overall healthier for the baby to have that uh, extra cord time uh, without being clamped and cut. Uh, so again, check with your mother on that. Check with your families. Make sure uh, if they're wanting that delayed cord clamp. And uh, if it's not something you're comfortable with, you can always call and contact your uh, your medical control. Um, name of the game is still airway, guys. We've got a newborn here, so we want to make sure we're resectioning the baby's mouth and nose, uh, especially if they're having any type of respiratory distress. And then we want to make sure we're drying and keeping the baby warm, uh, especially a warm blanket. And if we have a cover for its head, um, the, the biggest area where heat escapes on a newborn is going to be that head. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're keeping the head covered and keeping it warm. Uh, and then going back to our APGAR, we talked about that in the first episode, that APGAR assessment. We want to make sure we're checking that at one minute and five minute, uh, determine whether or not uh, we are going to need any type of resuscitative uh, system uh, going on with this newborn. And so we want to do the APGAR again, the appearance, uh, the pulse, the grimace, the activity, and respiratory effort of the child. Those five things are measured to determine uh, whether or not we are going to need to start resuscitative efforts. So we've got a baby now. The baby's been born. We've got a great APGAR. Things are going well. We're going to go ahead and make sure mom is on that O2. We're supporting her. We're going to go ahead and, and assist with the delivery of the placenta. This can occur anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes after delivery of the fetus. And so we're going to allow... Uh, that placenta to deliver normally. We are not going to pull on that cord. We certainly do not want to have any type of abruptio placenta by uh, external trauma to the cord. So we want to make sure we are just allowing that to happen naturally. Um, studies have suggested in the past that some uterine uh, fundal massage can also help. Um, and so we still teach that. But uh, again, just allowing that cord and that, that uh, placenta to deliver normally uh, should not uh, take too much effort and will occur, uh, should be within 30 minutes of that, uh, the, the birth of the baby. Uh, one thing to note with the placenta delivery is keeping a bag, uh, a biohazard bag to catch that. A lot of times doctors uh, will want to see that if you're transporting the mother to a hospital. Uh, they'll want to see that placenta to make sure that it all came out intact and, and uh, check the color and, and make sure everything else looks okay with that placenta. Uh, so do try to transport that with the mom and the baby uh, if possible. So that's it for the do's and don'ts on birth. Uh, we will continue our next podcast episode, again, looking at the different uh, vital signs that we should expect to see in our infant once we've done that APGAR testing, uh, what what vital signs are normal and what's abnormal for our, our infant or for our newborn. And we'll touch a little bit on neonatal resuscitation and what that looks like in the field. Uh, so join us back on the next episode as we work through the last part of uh, beginning a new life, an EMS guide to live birth. Thank you.